गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय हरि नाम प्रभु की जय गोविंद परमानंदे वी डिडंट गेट टू फार इन आवर डिस्कशन ऑफ उपदेश अमृतम इन माय अनप्रिपेयर्ड टॉक्स नॉट दैट आई प्रिपेयर रियली एनी ऑफ देम बट यूजुअली गिव अ लिटिल मोर थॉट टू व्हाट आई माइट टॉक अबाउट बट एनी रेट आई होप दैट दे वर हेल्पफुल वी टॉक्ड अबाउट things that were unfavorable for bhakti things that were favorable for bhakti and then shrupa began to speak about the life of devotees and their loving exchanges between one another i spoke about it mostly in terms of how we'll share love with more advanced devotees and brigupad questioned whether such exchanges were also in some way appropriate amongst one another and i said that um, certainly the word happens at the next verse of upadeshramrita is about how devotees relate with one another in a slightly different sense and it speaks about that from the perspective of the intermediate devotee how the intermediate devotee relates to less advanced devotees and how he or she relates to more advanced devotees so shrupa is going on with his instructions from what's to say unfavorable to what's favorable to the um nature of dealings between devotees and the conduct of an intermediate devotee really so he really expects us to be an intermediate devotee by the time we've gotten to this verse having accepted the things that are favorable rejected the things that are unfavorable and so forth so he wants to address serious practitioners at this point so we should try to embrace his his advice the nectar of his advice the mortal nectar of his advice and quickly quickly come to the intermediate stage of devotion where our progress will be steady and sure and our questions will be good too <laughs> and i know that you have questions prepared so, <laughs> so. we'll ask for them as well but uh i wanted to give a little bit of overview of the rest of the book and um the way in which very briefly rupagoswami speaks about how the intermediate devotee should relate as i say to the less advanced devotees and to the more advanced devotees is by way of speaking about them and defining them in a sense as well and all in relation to krishna nam which is the main practice of all of the devotees of chaitanya mahaprabhu he says that some people utter the name once or casually and some people utter the name after being initiated and the implication is that those who are initiated their practice of chanting is more informed they've received sambandha gyan proper conceptual orientation and so forth so these are the intermediate devotees and He says that while those who are devoted by way of just uttering the name Mahaprabhu himself gave this definition of a Vaishnava one who chants the holy name in Chaitanya Charitamrita after Rathayatra one year when he was asked by the residents of uh, the Kandavasis I think uh, Satyaraj asked um, what is a Vaishnava well said something like whoever chants the holy name it was asked a couple of times a couple of years and um he's playing that whoever chants the holy name is a vaishnava whoever's chanting 
with initiation and seriously he's an intermediate Vaishnava and whoever upon seeing others are caused to chant that he's a superlative Vaishnava something like that so he defined them in terms of their affinity for the name there those who just happen to chant or chant without being very well informed and who don't make much progress as a result of it about them, in this verse of Upadesha says they should be respected within the mind. They're considered they're part of our family, although they might be like family members that are a little odd, something like that, and whose company, at any rate, we won't flourish in the midst of, whereas those who are initiated, which would be other intermediate devotees, whose practice is informed and who are serious about their practice, then they should be offered respects to, they should be given regard. And the superlative devotee, like I say, from Chaitanya Charitamrita, who causes other people to chant, or who, in the words of Rupa Goswami, is absorbed internally in the bhajan life, non-bhajan, he should be, or she should be served. And the implication is, this again is basically speaking to the intermediate devotee, and, and how the intermediate devotee can advance by taking shelter of more advanced devotees, and he also wants him not to make offense, which would be more obvious and easy to avoid in relation to superlative devotee, whom intermediate devotees should worship and learn from, take shelter of, and so forth, but also in relation to the beginner, who's less advanced than ourselves. We should be careful about that and respect everyone in the mind who's chanting. Now, of course, it is the case that there are people who aren't initiated but are serious about practicing and so forth and would like to be initiated. And so it's not like cut and dry here, but the idea is that those who are trying to really seriously make advancement in Krishna consciousness, and this is what the intermediate stage is about, wanting seriously, earnestly trying to make progress trying to retire unwanted things. You may wonder what the stage of an art and the vritti is, because it's like, well, where is it? It's giving up unwanted things. It's kind of like a nebulous, how do you arrive there? You have bhajana kriya, which is anishta, unsteady, and bhajana kriya, which is steady. So when your bhajana kriya is unsteady, it's because anartas are in the way. So when they're out of the way, it's steady. So what's the stage then? of anartha nivritti, <laughs> you follow me? But it, basically it's how we in our practicing life reach a point where we are really prepared to retire the principal anarthas, the things that are getting in our way that aren't hard to figure out what they are. And so we make um, every effort and we succeed in that. I mean, we don't give in to that. In other words, things will arise that should be retired and we persist until they are then cleared of that without as much of a struggle by any means then one is engaged steadily. So, Siddharmarsh once called it a do or die stage. So you make it or, or don't. Of course, you can keep trying and trying. That's true, but at some point you're going to have to decide I want this, and this is in my way, and I'm going to retire it. And how am I going to do it? I don't have the power. 
So I'm going to do it by the strength of the holy name. That means I'll be chanting fervently and more attentively and seriously and, and so forth. So then, briefly after that, he goes on, Rupa Goswami, to describe the character of advanced devotees by way of advising us that they may not always be as easy to detect because our way of analyzing and seeing, perceiving and so forth is very external and devotion is very internal. So their inner life, their inner absorption is is not something that's really that visible to us. And there may be things about them that are visible that might lead us to think that um, they weren't worthy of hearing from or taking shelter of and so forth, bodily defects or something like that. And he also mentioned subtle. Body means gross and subtle, the disposition. They may not be the most polite person in the world or they might have different eccentricities and whatnot. It's, it's impossible. He gives the example, however, of the Ganges, which is said to be the divine footbath of Vishnu and purifying and even though certain things may form on the Ganges that are in and unclean, we should ignore that and not think that the Ganges is unclean. So we might see things in the body of a Vaishnava. He might be crippled or he might have a speech defect or something like that. might be blind or he might be cynical. It's possible. We should try to look beyond that to see the extent to which he or she is absorbed in uh, otherworldly thinking or the world of the scriptures and all these things. So then he goes on to start to talk about the practice of chanting. And first he informs us why the chanting may not be sweet, although it is sweet. And he gives the reason that because we're still... uh, suffering from the disease of ignorance and as the chanting removes that the sweetness will be tasted gives the example just like when you have jaundice sugar tastes bitter but if you take sugar it cures the jaundice and then when it's cured the sweetness can be tasted so these are encouraging example to help us understand why although we're determined although we've even retired the principle of anarthas taste isn't steady that comes in the next stage. And as it comes, he says, as he goes on, then one becomes qualified to select a suitable place for sitting and doing bhajan of the name, form, qualities, and pastimes in that order of the Lord, meditation upon them, contemplating them, and so forth. And then, a very helpful verse, he goes on to speak about... um, the um, glory of Radha's love and that of her place, Radha Kunda. So you should go through the book when you get a chance and sometime in the future hopefully we'll be able to explore these verses in some more detail. And now we can answer all your questions that Brigo has intimidated you to <laughs> come up with. <laughs> yes? Thinking you were speaking about the spiritual master, maybe having like physical defects like blindness. This is easy to understand for me at least that this is no problem. But then, how about when we might say some on the mental side some problems, spiritual? Like senility? 
forgetting things? Would that be an example? That could well be, and then... Heavier stuff, like schizophrenia? Yeah, maybe, maybe even, like, I'm just... Like what? Like some mental disease, even, like... Maybe like depression. I mean, how are we to understand why staff should be happy in service? He becomes depressed, clinically depressed. Uh Uh-huh. Well, the body will get sick, so the mind will fail. I never met anybody that was depressed. That requires a Scandinavian acharya. But um, the body breaks down, the mind breaks down, and the soul is different from the body. And I know a great devotee who had Alzheimer's disease, Sinacharya, and, you know, you lose your memory in that. And uh, for a few years, he just sat and chanted, and tears would constantly pour down his eyes. He remembered what was important. Something like that. I know that um, Mod Purimarsh, another devotee, great devotee, was quite old. and He was, um, I guess, dementia he suffered from, which is less developed form of Alzheimer's. He would forget things. He would ask me a question, and then ten minutes later he asked the same question. Where is so-and-so? Sometimes. You tell him about it, and he would have a chuckle. Such was the condition. body had to wear out, and that's a lesson, and so forth. Of course, if a disease, mental disease is incapacitating to some extent, then it would be our service to take care of that Vaishnava in all ways. So such things are possible. Those are examples, anyway, that I know of. But generally, I think we will find more instances in which there's infirmity of the body and the mind is kept pretty fit because it's such a intense mental culture. Uh, spiritual life is really a mental culture that often may involve neglecting the body, forgetting about bodily needs. And then you have people, of course, in mental diseases, they usually don't, other than the ones I talked about, which come later in life, I think they usually show up earlier in life. One doesn't just become schizophrenic all of a sudden at 60 years old, or do they? Suppose they could, huh? No, not usually or manic depressive or something that usually manifests in earlier years and so on. I think that if that couldn't be crossed over by spiritual practice and so forth, then you wouldn't find a superlative devotee in that situation. It would be crossed over, dealt with by the strength of practice and chanting. So the wilder diseases like that, schizophrenia or some severe form of depression and so forth, I couldn't imagine advanced devotees suffering from such this first refers more to dispositions in devotees that they may carry with them. People have a certain blueprint and so forth and fill it in differently with what they do in their life. But uh, we find examples of, like I said, cynical. Gorak Shodas Babaji was quite a, seemed quite cynical in his comments and not Mr. Polite and courteous and so forth. And didn't go out of his way to try to overtly to help people. He was very much lost in his inner life, his bhajan, tried to even keep people away for the most part. Anyway, the verse refers mostly to disposition that we, you know, we kind of learn sometimes in today's world that spiritual life means a healthy body and a strong mind and body, mind and soul. But really, soul is categorically different from body and mind. So what you may do to improve your body and mind and what you may do to improve your soul may be different. Although, I should say, 
Also, it's not possible to do things that um, one might do to improve one's body and mind and simultaneously improve the soul. It is possible to do that which is necessary to enlighten, feed the soul, and as a byproduct of that, improve one's body and mind as well. But it doesn't necessarily always happen like that. But it is theoretically possible. Therefore, emphasis should be given to those things. But we see many, many examples, and uh, it's not that a devotee doesn't suffer from imperfect senses. doesn't mean that he or she won't wear glasses or go blind, for example. It means that they, uh, they take advice from Scripture and from spiritual authorities and function accordingly, and therefore are not subject to the defects that ordinary conditioned souls are who don't have such advice and guidance and so forth to go by. Do you understand? So, I think, anyway, if some great devotee had some extraordinary mental disease, it would be apparent that that he or she was an extraordinary devotee, regardless, and um, it would have to be dealt with like some extreme eccentricity, and such a person's company would be apparent that it was good for us, good for one, and Krishna would have them attended to by their students, what the verse says is we are to relate to them by trying to see the extent to which they're absorbed in Krishna consciousness, which could make them quite dysfunctional in relation to the world. It's possible. We emphasize living a balanced life and so on, so that you can have, like I said before, both feet on the ground when you make your effort to jump up and touch the stars. Start with two feet on the ground. However you can get absorbed in Krishna consciousness is good. And there are many cases of people who aren't what you would call psychologically balanced or informed in terms of the modern world and are very advanced in Krishna consciousness. So the verse kind of cautions us about that, so that we will not offend such people and think ill of them, think they are disqualified somehow because of such mental or physical defects. Look beyond that, see their faith, their absorption. Indeed, some very advanced people may appear very strange. If they don't preach and they just go within, Vamsi Das Babaji was uh, quite strange, and most people would run away from him, probably. But some devotees were wise enough to be able to see that his motivation is such. Mahaprabhu himself became crazy. Mahaprabhu had mental disease, now that I think of it. And... Um, his mother's friends in the community felt very bad for her. One son had left and taken sannyas, the father had passed away, and the one boy, Nimai, that showed such promise, had become mad. It was described from an Ayurvedic perspective that his bodily airs were disturbed and he would go mad. And so they all felt very sorry for her. One day Srivastakura came to the house and said, I want that madness. I want that mental disease. If I could have that mental disease, then my life would be perfect. And uh, Mahaprabhu said, well, I'm glad you feel like that. That gives me some comfort. I was beginning to wonder. Everyone was thinking, I'm mad. So, Krishna consciousness is a kind of a mental disease. (laughs) Period. That's the norm. (laughs) Another question? Yes? When we speak about devotees, we often speak about qualities like they are humble and tolerant and so forth. And I was thinking, how does self-confidence show in a devotee, so to speak? Is there any place for that? Actually, humility and 
confidence, they go together. Therefore, Mahaprabhu's third verse of Shikshastakam, while speaking about humility, is also speaking to us about confidence, about nishta, about steadiness. That means confidence in the path, firm faith, and so forth. So, real humility, it fosters confidence. That confidence then may appear to less informed people to be pride. Right? <laughs> they think, he's so proud. <laughs> but he may be confident about uh, what he's received. Good fortune, blessing. He doesn't take credit for it. He doesn't think it's mine. But he's confident about the realization and so forth and shares that confidence with us. So, real humility and uh, confidence go hand in hand. I've said that it's interesting to note that one has to be flexible in order to be fixed. Same idea. You have to bend, to be humble, to be flexible, and ready to do the bidding of the guru and the Vaishnavas, senior Vaishnavas especially, and then doing so on their behalf. You're confident. This is what they want. This is what they say. This is, this is what the teaching is. And one asserts oneself. But his whole life is doing the bidding of others. That's pretty humble, right? On their order, he's doing. On their behalf, he's doing it. And he can be quite uh, courageous and uh, bold and and appear, as I say, ostensibly not to be humble at all to the uninformed. But the point is, to be informed is to know why he's doing that. It's not his natural position. His natural position would like to sit on the floor once we were at the airport with Prabhupada, Prabhupada was sitting on the chair and the devotees were sitting all around him on the floor. And one of the people from the airport came and said that uh, he told one of the leading devotees there that all of the devotees have to stand up. You know, they can't be sitting on the floor like this. And so he said, okay. So he stood up and he made an announcement. He said, all devotees should stand up. So Prabhupada stood up. No, not you, Prabhupada. He said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm devotee. <laughs> so, Bhakti Siddhanta Thakur gave a famous talk, more humble than a blade of grass. It was on the occasion of his Vyasa Puja, and he was sitting on a chair and had so many garlands and so forth. And he said, look at me, the big beast sitting here on a chair above everyone else and so forth. But then he began to explain the dynamic nature of humility, that I'm doing this at the request of my guru, Bhaktivinotaka wanted me to do like this, to take charge, so I'm doing that. And this is the, the dynamic idea of humility, that the basis of it is humble. But what does he want me to do? He wants me to take charge, because he feels confident that he's understood. Guru feels confident. You have understood, so now you must do. No, no, yes, you must. That's different than the one who isn't even being asked, but wants to sit on the seat and give the class and so forth. And there's plenty of those people also. Therefore, we're to watch against uh, Pratishta. I know in Purimarsh, promote Purimarsh's sect, then there were two sannyasis. One served him day and night. And um, I once asked him a question from Bhaktivedanta Sindhu. He said, uh, I never read that book. And the other one was a scholar, really good scholar. And even Purimarsh sent him to learn from different sampradayas and so forth and get an education. And so they were quite different. 
And um, the one was a Brahmin by birth, and he had uh, a higher Brahmin birth than Puri Maharaj. And the other one, I wasn't sure what his birth was, but he came to my ashram, Audarya, and um, he was very interested in the cows. And we had a table, had some incense and books and things, and then he walked by that, that caught his attention. He said, you're selling this and you're selling that. Hmm, and how much are you selling this for? And I could understand he came from a Vaishya family. You know, cows and business was this proclivity and so forth. Anyway, they were very different. And the one, the Brahmin, was so sure of himself that he made a point to tell Puri Maharaj that I come from a higher Brahmin family than you do. And I should be the Acharya in your absence. And the other one couldn't think of becoming the Acharya. And naturally, Puri Maharaj chose him to be the Acharya. And the other one ended up being dismissed altogether by, by Puri Maharaj and rejected. It used to be sometimes some devotees, they criticized Sridhar Maharaj because Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur wanted to go to the West and he didn't go, something like that. But he felt that uh, he wasn't that qualified. And I mentioned the other day he was unwilling to accept disciples even though nice people were coming and so forth. His tendency was always to be in the background, and this is a good tendency, actually. Especially in Gaudiamat, they were always concerned about when Balabhatirtha Maharaj, successor of Maharaj, came to the West, he brought only householders with him. No sannyasis, because he was afraid that some sannyasi or brahmachari would come to the West, and then he'd come back to India and he'd get all respect, oh, he's gone to the West to preach. He's gone and conquered America or whatever this kind of thing, or that he would get some pride himself, that I'm a world preacher, and so to protect them from that. He didn't take any first time around on his trip. <laughs> so, Pratishta is a problem. That's not confidence. That's, that's pride. We should be proud to be a devotee, proud to be a servant. We should be proud of what we've gotten from our gurus and know that to do justice to it, we will share it with others. And um, this is kind of I say dynamic humility. Humility doesn't mean to be some kind of timidity or something like that and lacking in uh, self-esteem. It means to do the bidding of Krishna. It's not an abstract thing, but humble before Krishna, humble before the Guru. Guru says, do this, you do it. That's life of humility. And that will bring confidence because what he tells you to do is good for you. You'll get confidence from that. Feel sure about what you're doing. Have some force in your preaching. Your example will be compelling. Does that help? Yeah, so confidence and certainty follows humility. What else? Another question? Ram Govinda? And organized big meeting, different sects of Vaishnava, and there was also Puri Maharaj, and Shabbat sent uh, Puri Maharaj to invite Naya Maharaj, but Naya Maharaj didn't come on that meeting. I want to just know why he didn't come. He what meeting? Uh, meeting in different sects of Vaishnava, different groups. When? I'm not sure. I had an interview with Puri Maharaj, who mentioned... Which Puri Maharaj? Bhakti Bhai. Bhai Bhav Puri Maharaj. And he told you what? That he was sent to invite Nanaya Maharaj. Where? To Jagannath Puri. To Jagannath Puri? Yeah. To this meeting with 
another group of Vaishnava. And Puri Maharaj said that that time Nari Maharaj was really against to Shabarapat um, teaching from the West. Uh, this is when Prabhupada was here? Yeah, Prabhupada was there. Uh, you know, Vaibhav Puri Maharaj, he doesn't have a good memory. He's one of those Vaishnavas that don't have a very good memory. I talked to him once and I experienced that personally. And I have a pretty good memory right now anyway about uh, Prabhupada and what meetings he might have called for and so forth. And I don't remember any such meeting like that. Jagannath Puri, I mean, Prabhupada didn't even hardly spend any time in Jagannath Puri. Only in the very last year, 1977, was the Bhubaneswar Temple, I think, opened. In fact, I don't think it even opened before he passed away. So, Ryan Marsh and Vaibhava Puri Marsh don't get along. They live on the same street, but in Vrindavan, but they don't get along very well. For reasons that uh, I have not explored. They have some differences of opinion. So, maybe you heard it wrong, too. Where did you meet Vaibhava Puri Marsh? In Poland? No, no, no. I, I just I watched an interview with him. You watched an interview? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And, I, and he said something like that. If I saw the interview, maybe then I could... It's just not making any sense to me, what you're saying. Other than the fact I know that the two of them don't see eye to eye on some things. But the way you're explaining it to me, I can't really understand what he was talking about in order to reply appropriately. But Narayan Maharaj is a disciple of Keshava Maharaj, who's Prabhupada's godbrother, and Narayan Maharaj presided over the sannyas ceremony of um, Prabhupada, which took place at Keshav Maharaj's moth in Mathura. And so he was always very junior to Prabhupada and very respectful to Prabhupada for the most part while Prabhupada was present. I don't think he, like many people, understood Prabhupada very well when Prabhupada first went to America. And there's some correspondence between Prabhupada and Narayan Maharaj. If you study it, you can see that he, Narayan Maharaj didn't quite really understand what Prabhupada was doing in all respects, but he did it and made clear what he was doing. And once that was made clear, I think that Narayan Maharaj put him in perspective. So he always had, as far as I know, respect for Prabhupada when Prabhupada was here. Sure, he has respect for him today, too. How could he not? Going and traveling seeing all that he did everywhere in so many places. Well, anyway, not the best question, but... <laughs> Good try. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Maharaj, I just wonder, how many bhakti is there, in your opinion, in other great traditions? How much bhakti? Yeah, In other great traditions, how much bhakti? Well, you know, it's hard enough to know your own tradition, so I don't spend a lot of time studying other traditions. Do you mean theoretically how much bhakti is there, or at present, or theoretically like how much bhakti is in Christianity, or Islam, or something like that? Mm -hmm. Well, in a very generic sense, there seems to be some bhakti in... uh, Christianity and Islam, their theistic traditions. Buddhism is a non-theistic tradition. 
and even they have some kind of devotion. But um, Buddhism in particular was singled out by Rupa Goswami as being non-devotional. And in a general way, he spoke about any tradition that appeared to have devotion, like there is a Buddhist sect that's overtly devotional and they worship the Buddha and chant the name of Buddha and they desire to go to the Buddha land, the pure land, and so forth. Perhaps he was referring to them. But the statement applies perhaps more broadly as well. He said that, and he quoted from the scriptures in this regard, that that bhakti that is not in accordance with the shruti and smriti and revealed literatures, that it's not really bhakti. And more than that, he says, it's a disturbance to the community of actual devotees treading the path of bhakti. That's a pretty strong statement. Buddhists in particular, of course, they reject the scriptures of the Hindus, of the Vaishnavas, and have a mundane understanding of their origins and so forth. So, with regard to Christianity and Islam, how well do they follow the Bhakti Shastras that give the science of devotion? Mahaprabhu himself did not think that there was much Bhakti in Islam. Therefore, he told the Chandkazi that what kind of religion do you follow? That in your religion you kill your mother because the mother is, the cow is the mother. And that was how he spoke to him. Of course, he replied, well, in your holy text, there's also sometimes sacrifice of the cow. And Mahaprabhu said, first of all, that's another thing. That's not just eating meat. That's not what that's about. And secondly, he said, that's not allowed in Kali Yuga either. And he converted the Chandkazi to Vaishnavism to some extent, I suppose, to Vaishnavism, to honor the Vaishnavas. His family does all the way even to today, generations afterwards. So he didn't seem to think there was much bhakti in Islam. We have that example. We have no example of him interacting with Christians in Chaitanya Charitamrita. But Bhakti Vinod Thakur, on the other hand, gave us kind of a generous outlook about Christianity and um, considered there was some bhakti in there, but that Gaudiya Vaishnavism was a much more developed form of bhakti. I think it's important that a tradition has a guru parampara. It appears to me that Christianity was set up with the idea of having a guru parampara when they had the first pope. They had Peter and Paul, they had saints and so forth. I guess Paul came later. But it seemed like even his forming of the Catholic Church, to the extent that he was involved, he had an idea of a guru parampara, and the pope was infallible, and on faith and morals it became, I guess, later. To the extent that that kind of deteriorated and whatnot, so did the Catholic Church. That was the whole problem with Luther's revolt, the corruption of the priesthood and the Guru Parampara, so he became a Ritvik or something. <laughs> and some people listened to him. Then there's other traditions like the Advaitins, and in some Advaitin traditions there's some Bhakti, but, we, but their Bhakti is considered subordinate to Jnana, so we consider that the generosity of Bhakti to manifest in Sattva to help them get liberation. But then they're not 
in touch with parabhakti, post-liberated bhakti, so not much bhakti there. In Patanjali's system, not much bhakti there. Some people have tried to, because yoga is so popular, I think some Vaishnavas have tried to find ways to look at Patanjali as being theistic and a Vaishnava and so forth. Maybe he was a disciple of Vyas, right? They say. But um, the yoga traditions, there's not a lot of bhakti there. So, I don't know, we got so much in our tradition that it's hard to say anybody else has much in comparison. <laughs> we have other Vaishnava traditions that are very, you know, serious devotees. That's true. I'm asking because nowadays a lot of uh, people distrust towards any religion, artistic, fantasy, knowing, because there's a lot of, at least I think, a lot of nonsense, a lot of leaders speaking a lot of nonsense. Misrepresentation. Yeah. And I thought about what is this Bhakti attitude you are spoken about in those religions. I was wondering, where is this bhakti attitude you were spoken about in that religions? If there is any bhakti in that traditions? Well, the devotion that we spoke about was largely and emphasized was the spirit of it was that it's performed for the pleasure of Bhagwan without any other consideration to the extent to which it's performed for his pleasure and it's about being interested in his life rather than what he can do for my life, that kind of bhakti, I don't think there's too much of that in too many places. I, I mean, I'm not an expert on any other tradition, so I'm hardly an expert on this one. So Prabhupada used to say, you know, oh Lord, give me my daily bread or something like that about Christianity. And on the basis of that, he kind of gave him the lower status. I know that Bon Marge once in Europe was invited to a drama, it was a theistic drama. In the drama, God was in the balcony, and the main stage was down below, and every now and then God would come out and have his part, I bless you, I condemn you, something like that. And after it was over, they asked him what he thought, and he said, well, it's quite different, because in our religion, God is on the main stage. He's the son of Yashoda, and in your religion, he's the father, he lives in the balcony. <laughs> And you, know, you don't see much of him, you don't know much about him, and you don't care that much about him, except that he gives a blessing that you can be on the main stage, that your life is main stage. So that attitude is more like what I was saying, a childish idea of religion, that what God can do for me only. So not much bhakti there. Another question? Yes. Do you have suggestions about chanting, that chanting on uh, Namadhas gives uh, liberation? What happens when some aspires for uh, Krishna Prema but leaves body at Namadhas? Does this person uh, have to go to Vaikuntha or Facebook once again? So one wants Prem Bhakti, but he's chanting Namabhas? And uh, leaves body at that moment. Oh. The idea that by Namabhas one can get liberation should be better understood. The idea is that by such chanting, karma is removed. 
That's what it means. And the removal of karma constitutes liberation. Of course, it's in Vaishnavism, it's only half the equation of liberation, the other half being developing prem. But bondage, at any rate, is the influence of karma. So, this is the idea, that by that kind of chanting, which is coming closer to the name itself, the name himself, it's the you're in the shadow of the name. There's some spiritual um, element to that, and experiential bhakti is inner experiences possible by that kind of name. And again, destruction of karma. So this is what it means. You can get liberation by namabhas, but it doesn't mean that if one is aspiring for Krishna prem and is chanting Namabhas only, and hasn't come to the pure name, and they leave the world, that somehow they'll go somewhere other than their destination, their desired destination. No. They'll return to continue to perform bhakti until they attain their destination. So you won't get lost in the Brahma Jyoti or <laughs> stuck without a plane ticket in Vaikuntha or something like that. It's possible, though, that you could talk about it in another way, that if you think of Vaishnava Mukti, then by Namabhas you can come into a full... With the removal of karma, you come to a real sense of the greatness of Bhagwan, which, of course, is what Vaikuntha is about, because the finite is approaching the infinite, the gap is being bridged, and one really feels what the infinite's like. It's infinite. So, in that sense, this kind of spirit of Vaikuntha, which is a liberated condition, one can have some semblance of an experience of that in Namabhas. In that sense, we pass through Vaikuntha. So sometimes in our lineage we talk about it like that. First passing through the Brahmanda, then Vaikuntha, then the creeper goes to Golok and takes shelter there at the feet of Krishna and so forth. So it means something like that. Now we don't even have reverence for Krishna, really. We just speak of love. <laughs> I used to remember... Promote Puri Maharaj at over a hundred years old, how he would go out of his way to pay obeisances. I mean, it was quite physically difficult for him, and he had real reverence for the Lord and for the holy name. When he would chant, I remember one devotee asked him to chant on his beads, he had lost his beads, so he gave his initiated beads, gave a new set of beads to Puri Maharaj, and he agreed to chant, and we were all there. And so he began chanting, and he just his eyes went like this, like he was just looking at having darshan and just stayed fixed there for the whole round. It was completely oblivious to the others there. Then he finished and he had the beat so attentive and in this sense reverential and but um, not cultivating a mood of reverence in the context of cultivating and aspiring for the um, rag bhakti, something like that. So one's going to pass through a stage of reverence, of actually really respecting Bhagavan. They're going to jump over that.
and it's going to correspond with selflessness, absence of separate desire. It's going to have to be there if there's going to be union, right? So in one sense, that's what it means, Gopakumar went to Bhaikuntha, something like that. Crossing over so many planes. It's also there to show us how high the ideal is. And if it's laid out for us like that, then we get attached to the ideal, despite the fact it may take us time in some of the places that you will pass through are quite desirable in comparison to where you might be now. That's why it's important to get education. What is the goal? What if Krishna comes to you and says, you could be my queen. Come. You could be chanting. He could come to you and say, I want you to be my queen in Dwarka. Please come. I have a palace waiting for you. What will you say? <laughs> if you've understood, you say, no, thank you. But don't you understand, it could take many lifetimes more to go to Goloka. And it's only just a village there, just cow people. You say, no, thank you, I'm not interested. That's lobha, <laughs> eagerness. We just want to get relief, that's all. That's all we want, some relief from some suffering or improved material conditions. And a real Raghavakta will not even consider anything, even if Krishna personally comes and makes an offer. When Gopakumar is going through all the different planes, they're all inviting him, stay here, stay here. It's really great here. So much better than the place you were last. And Bhagwan comes here sometimes. All the people here see him inside all the time. No one really need to move or go anywhere. So many places he went, and they were all very inviting. He didn't stop anywhere. So, what else? Yes. Guru Maharaj, I read, I think, in Shila Prabhupada's um, that once he's performing uh, bhakti, then his family and some number of generations before him and after him become liberated. I'd like to ask you, is that true? And what kind of liberation is that? And could you say something about how helpful bhakti is not only for us, but for other people? Close to us. Mm-hmm. Well, if we become a devotee, then there are people who are attached to us, like families attached to us. And if we become a devotee and they're attached to a devotee, then it's obviously good for them, right? If Krishna loves you as a devotee, not in the general way that God loves everybody, but if he loves you as a devotee because you love him as a devotee, you have to just understand a little reflect on what is the psychology of love. Even ordinarily speaking, if you love somebody, some person, and then you find out some other people who love that person, then you naturally feel some connection with them, right? You feel some relationship with them. You feel you'll be happy in their company, right? So when Krishna loves you, then if other people love you, then naturally Krishna thinks affectionately towards them. This is how it works. And so some benefit will come to them. And in time they'll become liberated. They'll become devotees also. It may not happen tomorrow or in this life, but that will happen. So it's true. So don't worry about them. And don't let them keep you behind (laughs) with uh, their reasons as to why you shouldn't be a devotee. You have to have a little 
fortitude and foresight and and sometimes the children have to become the parents, right? Works like that. Show the way the family members. Detachment is really the first signs of love. It's in an abstract sense, but with detachment we're moving away from what is not love, what is exploitation. And if that detachment is coming to us in the context of bhakti, then even more so. It's the beginning of the signs of love. You're moving away from exploitation, which was the real basis of your relationship with others. Because, as I said earlier, if you're steeped in the bodily conception of life, then you have to be a taker. So everyone's there for reasons of their own. (laughs) They're related with one another for reasons of their own. Of course, we're born in a particular family. We may think, I didn't choose it, but... Nonetheless, we're the bond that's formed is a bond of attachment. Attachment is a sign of ignorance, and it arises out of a necessity, a sense of need. So the ignorance is that one doesn't know that one's full in and of oneself, and feels needy due to the misidentification with the body, and so a bond is formed. So attachment is not love. It's It might be an agreement to exploit one another or something like that. I mean, it sounds crude, but that's really, unfortunately, what's happening. So detachment, on the other hand, especially that which arises in the context of bhakti, is the beginning of love, and it doesn't look like love. So what isn't love often looks like love. I mean, even in a crude sense, we know... If, young boy and young girl fall in love, and we can say that's not love. And how long is that going to last? And we know it's just infatuation, perhaps, and it doesn't last. But it really looks like love. More than mature love, where sacrifice has been made, and you know there's give and take, and, and the reasons you're together, mature love means you're together for reasons other than infatuation, or overt need that's being met. So the more the love becomes mature, the more it doesn't look like love. And the more it's immature and just infatuation, the more it looks like that it's madly in love with with one another. And so as detachment starts to manifest in the devotee, which is the corollary of knowledge, it, it comes with knowledge, as their bhakti becomes informed, and on top of that, as they get experience, then detachment naturally manifests. And it looks like, what did you tell your mother at one time? You were really happy there in Odaria or something? I remember. You remember what I'm saying, but you know, one time you told me, you mentioned something to her on the phone, and it kind of, you didn't mean it in a particular way, but it hit her like a bomb or something like that. He likes it there. He's not going to be coming back here. He's going to stay there. Anyway, it looks like it's detachment. It looks like he doesn't love us anymore. Why doesn't he come around? You know, but it is really the first sign, in a sense, of love, and that it's moving away from exploitation. And although he's not overtly giving to them, he is giving to all concerned, whoever that person becomes, a devotee and does what's necessary. 
You have to help yourself first, become a devotee, then set a good example. Everybody won't take advantage of it entirely in this lifetime. But nonetheless, it is taken advantage of knowingly or unknowingly by whoever comes in touch with that. So this is the invisible truth, so to speak. You can experience it yourself, but in the beginning you may need to push to hear these things and then if you're thoughtful and sincere, you apply yourself and then you get the experience. By this detachment, you're actually becoming more full. You're actually becoming a giver. You're not taking anymore. You're not forming relationships based on taking. Spiritual taking, that's another thing. You want to take, get the mercy of the guru and Vaishnavas and get taste for the name and so forth and so on. You have a right for that. But we have spiritual greediness for that matter. But, um, yeah, you should think this out. Family um, and friends and so forth. How to love them. And um, in doing so, it will appear to them and perhaps to others also who aren't informed. It's not, he doesn't love her anymore. He doesn't love his family. He doesn't come around at Christmas and bring gifts or whatever or accept our gifts. So... This is uh, serious, serious stuff, right? If you pay attention and apply yourself, your life's going to change radically. This is a very radical idea here, Krishna consciousness. People, uh, as I say, looks just the opposite of what it is. But there's a nice statement in Chaitanya Charitamrita. What is that? How's that go? Adbhuta Premira Chirita. The wonderful characteristic of Prem, Krishna Prem, is that on the outside it looks very frightening, but on the inside it's full of happiness, joy, giving, love. And conversely, material life is just the opposite. It looks like a party, it looks happy and all, but it's really people are just fighting with one another, taking struggle. Darwin said, it's a struggle, survival of the fittest. And our teaching is, you'll be most fit to survive if you become the kindest. The kindest will survive, thrive, and live forever. You have courage. You can't wait for everybody to come along with you. Your numbers come up, that's it. Krishna's calling you, and that's it. <laughs> Go now. But, what about, no, I'll take care of them. See, you think you're taking care of them. No, you're not. Or we're not taking care of our family, friends. No, no, that's not the case. Krishna says, I'm taking care of it. You come with me. Don't worry about them. But don't worry about them. I'll take care of them. And before you have to know who Krishna is, then you go, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> he can take care of them. What can I do? Nothing. He can do everything. So I put myself in his hands. And he will. It'll all be benefited from that. Yes? What do you like the most in your students? What do I like the most in my students? <laughs> I, I like when I love Krishna, when they advance. When I see the things I'm talking about, they're actually understanding and putting in place. That's what I like. Bring that to me. A fellow named Grant, who recently joined the Tattva Vivek, he wrote to Nitai Das 
And Audari to ask him, he said he was going to India for a couple of weeks, South India, if there's anything that I would like. So I wrote back to Mithat, I said, tell him there's one thing I would like, he's going to be in Mysore area. I'd like him to have the darshan of Lord Adamalava there, that's somewhere in that area, Shinga Chaitanya somewhere in the south there. Is this what I would like? Please go and have their darshan. Do that for me. So that's what I like, this kind of thing. Like when they make advancement, Krishna consciousness. This is the real, real gift. When they make sacrifice, they hear, they understand, and then they take the trouble to go there, wherever it is that it's obvious they should go. How could it be anything else? Right? So, what else? Okay, try to associate with one another as much as possible, and um, we'll meet again soon. Sriman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Sri Bhaktivinoda Parivar ki jai.